If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. What are the consequences when conspiracy theories, lies and paranoia find their teeth? Well, Paul Preston's new book, Architects of Terror, tackles this question head on exploring the careers of General Franco and six other men who staged a military uprising in July 1936, inspired by hatred for the Spanish Republic's social and economic reforms, and a delusional belief that a Jewish Masonic Bolshevik conspiracy threatened to destroy Spain's Catholic identity. The subsequent civil war that followed claimed the lives of approximately 500,000 Spaniards, and paved the way for a dictatorship that held fast to this paranoid worldview until the mid-1970s. Danny Bird caught up with Paul to find out more. Paul, thank you for joining me today to discuss your latest book, Architects of Terror, Paranoia, Conspiracy and Antisemitism in Franco-Spain. To start us off, would you mind providing our listeners with an overview of the period your book looks at? Well, it's probably best if I, I start trying to describe what the book's about. To an extent, it's, it's an attempt to explain the what Mike nowadays would call the fake news that underlay the arguments in favour of a military uprising. Basically, the, the right wing in Spain was determined to block a whole raft of of reforms that the Democratic Republic, which had come into power in 1931, was trying to introduce agrarian reform, basic welfare reforms, women's rights, and so on. But the set of, hesitate to call them ideas, that justified, in inverted commas, the opposition to democratic ideas, that went back quite some time. Of course, one of them, the the one that went back furthest, was anti-Semitism. And of course, that was central to Spanish Catholicism, and that went right back to the Spanish Inquisition. But 
I would say that probably in the 1920s, when Spain was ruled over by a military dictatorship, that of General Miguel Primo de Rivera, a dictatorship that was much more mild than that of Franco's was to become. But at that time, Primo de Rivera made a gift to some of his top generals, which was a subscription to a bulletin put out by the the so-called International Anti-Communist Entente, which was uh, an outfit run from Geneva by white Russian exiles. So you can imagine the kind of ideas that, uh, that they were peddling. And this bulletin, which was devoured by Franco and, and, and several of his colleagues, basically pushed the idea that communism was all-powerful, that it was masterminded by, by the Jews, and its plan was to destroy Spanish civilization. Now, there is actually no way that Franco, well, you one would think there was no way that Franco could have believed some of the rather lunatic ideas. I mean, one of the central ones was the, I, I, I don't know if your listeners will be familiar with a rather obnoxious pamphlet that was published, first of all, in Russia and then in Germany, called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And this notion was that there was a kind of central committee of world Jewry that set out to control the world. And it is so ludicrous. It it is quite laughable, but incredibly noxious. And the idea was that the Central Committee of World Jewry, its annual general meeting used to take place in a cemetery in Prague at midnight, one night each year, when they would plan the destruction of, of world Catholicism and so on. This book, which is still in print in Spain, astonishingly, which was exposed in the 1920s as a falsification in most of Europe, but over the years, I mean, there were endless reprints of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and it was almost one of the Bibles of Franco and his cohorts. So these are some of the ideas that, you know, basically the book is about what were really very practical policies, that is to say, to put an end to the development of women's rights, agrarian reform, and so on. So to put an end to any kind of social reform that these extremist ideas were were peddled. And of course, it wasn't just books like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. I mean, there were a lot of right-wing newspapers that that peddled these ideas as well. The the title of your introductory chapter refers to fake news. How much did recent and ongoing events in our world today inspire you to write this book? That is actually an amazingly interesting question. I would say not consciously, for instance, to give you an example, just to kind of move away, my previous book, which is called The People Betrayed, and it was a history of corruption and political incompetence, an overall history of, of, of modern Spain, really, from the mid-19th century absolutely to the present day. It wasn't consciously inspired by what was going on in the UK with Brexit, but I think subconsciously, it was very influenced. And I think in a way, the same thing is the case with with this book, so that I wasn't 
consciously thinking about the fact that there was the scandal about anti-Semitism in the in the Labour Party and so on. But I think the fact that these, I mean, I think it's inevitable. Any historian is in a way writing the history of his own times, his or her own times. And I, I, I think that's probably the case. The phrase fake news, of course, when I had finally actually finished the manuscript and was putting chapter labels onto it was extremely convenient. But I, I don't think it had been, you know, it wasn't what I was setting out to do when I first started. I mean, in, in, in a way, these architects of terror, I'd started to study many of them good, oh, at least 30, if not 40 years ago. So more of an influence in terms of chapter headings than the actual, you know, ba- the, the, the basic principles behind the book. Your book is formed of chapters that address the roles of key individuals before, during and after the Spanish Civil War. Could you provide a sketch of each one of these architects of terror for our listeners? So the first chapter is about how Franco and his immediate circle, fellow generals and so on, were influenced by the ideas that are then dealt with in in the next six chapters. And that really goes up to Franco's activities up to the end of of the Civil War in 1939. And the final chapter is about how Franco and his cronies continue to be influenced by these ideas after the Civil War. And and particularly it looks at one, I think, very important issue, which is that although during this period, I mean, after the, certainly after the Second World War, Franco went to enormous trouble to try to persuade the Western world that he had he was actually a friend to the Jews and he'd, he'd done a lot to protect Jews during the Holocaust. It was an absolute lie. And in fact, what I show is that throughout this time, he was publishing articles and a book that was virulently anti-Semitic. So they're the two framing chapters. And in between, there are four chapters, three of which are, if you like, about the ideas men. So they are called the policeman, who was a man called Mauricio Carlavia, who was a totally corrupt policeman, who made a lot of money writing books that summed up some some of these ideas. To give you an idea of the kind of things that he wrote, I mean, most of them had sort of anti-communist titles, but one of them was called Sodomizers. I mean, one of his ideas was that homosexuality and communism sprang from, you know, he had the same wellsprings. An unbelievably noxious character, totally corrupt. It was the priest who's about a very distinguished theologian, a man called Joan Tusquets, who was obsessed with Freemasonry and used to spy on Masonic lodges and so on. And during the Republic, that's the years before the Civil War, he put together a card index of the people he claimed to be Freemasons in Spain. Now, actually, it's verifiable, there were approximately 7,000 Freemasons in Spain. His file card index had 80,000 names, and those 80,000 names were used as the basis for some of the Francoist repression. 
And he wrote numerous books and pamphlets that were, above all, anti-Masonic, but were also pretty ferociously anti-Semitic. And then the third of these characters, called the poet, who was actually a very distinguished poet, José María Pemán, who still has quite a reputation in Spain, but who was Franco's main propagandist, or one of his main propagandists during the Civil War, who peddled some of the most noxious ideas that were anti-Semitic, anti-Masonic, of course, anti-left-wing, that goes without saying. I hesitate to use words like ideas, but some of the notions peddled by these people are so vile, it's just quite unbelievable. Anyway, so they're the first three. Then the fourth is a rather interesting character I, I actually call the messenger. And he was a Spanish army officer, but who were, his mother was English, and he'd been educated in the UK. He was educated in the Jesuit College, Stonyhurst, uh, in Lancashire. I mean, he was something of an intellectual, although his ideas were quite loopy. The reason why I included him and why he's called the messenger is that he, because he was a great linguist, absolutely fluent, I mean, he, he's spoke English like an Englishman, spoke very good French and German. He spent time in Germany during the, the, the First World War. And so he had got an appointment as a kind of liaison with foreign correspondents, I mean, pro-Franco correspondents. And many of those who wrote in their memoirs, they, they described some of his ideas, and, and some of them are completely, I mean, they are so mad. But his most striking was the idea that the biggest problem in Spain, and the reason why there had to be a civil war, was sewers. So the answer lies in the sewers. His idea was that before municipal governments or councils and so on installed urban sewerage the working class used to be decimated by plague and pestilence and so on and that kept the working class to kind of controllable numbers because some noxious individuals had introduced sewerage it meant that more members of the working class survived and therefore in his theory every couple of decades there had to be a crusade to decimate the working class and bring it back to controllable numbers. So that's the, that's the messenger. The other two, the remaining individuals, were both actually people who implemented these ideas. One who I call the killer in the north was General Emilio Mola, who was actually the man who organised the military coup on behalf of the other generals who were involved. And he basically ran the war, or the Francoist war effort, in the north and was responsible, I would guess, for somewhere between forty and 50,000 deaths. And the other one, who was an even more obnoxious uh, and lunatic character, General Capo de Llano, who I call the psychopath in the south, who did have the most extraordinary ideas. And he, he had a, a daily radio program, and, and so the actual transcripts of his programs, much censored, I have to say, were printed in the press in Seville every day, so we can get an idea. And they basically were 
calls for Republican women to be raped, for there to be mass annihilation of the left and so on. I mean, his personal life was equally obnoxious. He's the sixth of of my main six architects of terror. And then we cycle back to Franco and, and, and the way he continued to cherish these all these ideas after the Civil War was over. What was the Contabernio and why did it gain such traction among right-wing circles in the years leading up to the outbreak of the Civil War in 1936? Well, the contubernio, the idea, I mean, the, the, the word contubernio in Spanish kind of means vile concubinage. So it already, you know, it has a sort of sexual connotation. And the implication is that there was this link between the Jews, the Freemasons, and the communists. This was an idea that was very much propounded by the outfit in Geneva that I mentioned before. But it's common in the writings of Father Tusquet, who I mentioned before, about the policeman, Mauricio Carlavilla. It's prominent in the, the, the speeches, the articles, and the epic poems written during the war by, by Jose Maria Peman. And the idea, which is completely crackers, is that the Jews were out to destroy world Catholicism and they they had, if you like, two armies. One was capitalism and the other was communism. Now, obviously, the very idea that communism and capitalism, you know, you wouldn't think that either capitalists or communists would be sympathetic to this idea, but that, that, that was the basic idea, the Jews being in charge. The other was that the whole thing was run from something called the Masonic superstate. And this Masonic superstate, which is one, one finds, for instance, in the books of Carla Villa, both ran the British government and particularly the BBC, and it also ran the American government and particularly the New York Times, and one has to wonder where on earth was it? So, uh, where, you know, where was it based? It had to be in Atlantis. But, you know, these ideas, again, are so bizarre that you'd think it was difficult for anyone to believe them. And yet, of course, they were very, very convenient. The anti-capitalism idea fitted particularly with the Spanish fascists, the Falange, which claimed to be just like Italian fascism, or indeed the Nazis, to be revolutionary. It fitted in that way. Obviously, hatred of of the Jews fitted in with with hatred of Catholicism. And of course, the idea that the Bolsheviks were were the central enemy, well, that that was axiomatic for people on the right. And particularly, I mean, obviously the Catholic Church felt threatened in Spain, felt deeply threatened by by the left, just as, of course, the left felt threatened by, by the Catholic Church. So these ideas were picked up and became immensely popular. You know, there's lots of newspapers, I mean, best-selling newspapers that propelled these ideas. To what extent was this conspiracy driven by a reaction against the social and economic reforms championed by the Second Spanish Republic? Well, a lot of these ideas predated the Second Republic. A lot of them were were to be found in the military dictatorship of General Primo de Rivera. 
And to an extent, there was a, a reaction against the fact that, I mean, they, it, it's a long and complicated story, but the Prima de Rivera dictatorship basically collapsed under the weight of its own corruption. And it became more convenient, of course, to blame this on communism and the left. I said a couple of minutes ago that you know here we have Tusquets saying that the you know having a, a file card index of eighty thousand noxious Freemasons, when in fact there were probably about seven thousand. By the same token, there is this notion that the, the Jews are all powerful in Spain, when in fact in 1931, at the beginning of the Second Republic, there were 3,000 Jews in Spain. And that, of course, included women, children, old people, and so on. And all of them, people basically scrambling to make a living. So the idea that you know that they were this all-powerful central committee setting out to destroy Spanish Catholicism is quite ludicrous. Now, after the Nazis came to power, approximately another 3,000 German Jewish exiles came to Spain. So by the beginning of the Spanish Civil War, there were 6,000 Jews in Spain. And you could imagine that the recently arrived exiles were you know, struggling to stay alive, let alone trying to, you know, to, to, to dominate the world. And the Communist Party, far from being all-powerful, was tiny in Spain. And of course, it, right from the very beginning, even even before the Second Republic came into power, all of the left, and there are basically three strands to the left in Spain, probably the most numerous are the anarchists, but also the most disorganised. Then there's the socialists, who are there's the Socialist Party and the Socialist Trade Unions, and the, and the tiny Communist Party, and it suited right wing propaganda to label them all as communists. Again, it almost becomes irrelevant that there were hardly any Jews, hardly any Freemasons, hardly any communists. You know, the, these labels were very convenient and and lapped up. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out 
with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Many of these men, notably Franco himself, were Africanistas. What is meant by that term and what distinguished their worldview? I once caused a bit of a scandal in Spain when asked, I mean, basically tried to prodded to say that Franco was a fascist. And I said, Franco wasn't a fascist. He was much worse. He was an Africanista. <laughs> and what I meant by that, of course, was that he was a colonial officer in the Spanish African army. So as a kind of general label, the officers in the Spanish colonial army were, were called Africanistas. And from 1927 onwards, Franco was head of the, he was the director of the Spanish Military Academy, where he trained a whole generation of officers, the, the officers who were to fight the Civil War, in the basic tenets of Africanismo, if we call it that. And this was basically a deeply racist and, ironically, anti-Arab because it, it despised the colonial population in Morocco and the policy of the African army towards it was one of extermination. And those ideas were then, of course, at the beginning of the Civil War, once the African army was transported into Spain, those ideas were then applied to the Spanish working class. And particularly one of the notions of the Africanistas, was that the particularly the, the rural working class of the south of Spain, that to all intents and purposes they were the same as, as Moroccan tribesmen and therefore they deserved exactly the same treatment. But of course the irony was that an important part of the African army were of course Moroccan mercenaries. They were actually called the regulares indigenas, the, the native regulars. And so the basic ideas of Africanism had to be tweaked so that all of a sudden the, the regulares, the, the, the Moroccans who were fighting, I mean, for money, of course, but who were fighting on, on Franco's side, were doing so because of their deep sympathy for Spanish Catholicism and their desire to defend the, you know, the traditional ideas of the Spanish right. How did Franco's anti-Semitic policies compare to those of other autocratic regimes in Europe during the same period? Well, there are other places in books of mine where I have suggested that although Franco, to this day, enjoys quite a good press, in Western Europe, in some circles, that, of course, the scale of his repression far outweighed that of Mussolini in Italy by a massive degree. Now, of course, one might argue, it's a bit more complicated, that the number of Spanish citizens who were annihilated by Franco is comparable with the number of non-Jewish German citizens. And this is this is complicated, and if, if you like it, it's a morally difficult area. The big difference is, of course, that Franco's anti-Semitic activities were confined to Spain and Morocco. So there was a geographical limit. Whereas Hitler's anti-Semitic activities, of course, spread all over continental Europe. 
and and, and therefore on, or on a, a much greater scale. And of course, Hitler was helped and encouraged, you know, by the likes of Admiral Horty in in Hungary. There were anti-Semitic elements who came to the fore under the German occupation. So that's, I mean, one very obvious way in which Franco's anti-Semitic activities are fewer. And of course, the obvious one, as I've already stated, there were hardly any Jews against whom to implement anti-Semitic policies. And one another further complication was that those Jews in Spanish Morocco, who were very often very prosperous businessmen, were actually pro-Franco. So there was a there was an ambiguity there. Following their uprising against the Republic in July 1936, what action did the military rebels take in confronting those they perceived as complicit in the conspiracy against Spain? Well, I mentioned earlier on one of the kind of mass killers, General Mola. He was called El Director, the planner of the military conspiracy. Part of his planning involved issuing secret instructions, which were sent to the the major conspirators, and were then, once the uprising started, were issued to army officers. And there were detailed plans for literally the annihilation of anyone who had been a member, I mean, particularly been an official, a senior member of a left-wing party, of a trade union, of a socialist or Republican town council and so on, journalists who had written articles that propounded liberal ideas. So there were very detailed plans for extermination, which could be summed up by one of the statements made by by General Mola very early on, one of his first broadcasts, in which he said, we must eliminate those who do not think like we do. And that that was the overall plan. What actually happened on the ground in terms of communities, in terms of these armies converging on towns and villages? Literally the first days, of course, there was a collapse of law and order. There was a collapse of the apparatus of the state. And in many places, local peasant organisations took over and did things like distribute land, distribute livestock, and so on. But within a matter of days, and obviously this is a chronological process, but parts of the African army arrived within a matter of days, and basically they were trained, they had proper weaponry, they had air support provided by Hitler and Mussolini, and they were able to take over very, very quickly. So... In Western Andalusia, so basically uh, the provinces of Cadiz, the western half of Malaga, Seville, and then Extremadura, Badajoz, these were taken over very quickly by the African army. A lot of people fled, and you know, untrained militia. When they did try to resist the well-trained African army, they were they were massacred, and then. As the major towns were recaptured, what then happened was that that small units of the African army, together with 
a kind of, this will sound, sound crazy, a landowner's cavalry. So most landowners had, amongst those who worked for them, well-trained horsemen. Obviously, that's very, very central to agriculture in, in, in Andalusia. And this kind of landowner's cavalry, accompanied by units of, of the African army, set out to mop up Cadiz, Huelva, Seville. The massacres in these small villages were, were quite horrendous. And obviously, subsequently, there was an attempt by the Francoists to imply that this was defensive. I sort of discussed the figures in great length in my book, The Spanish Holocaust. And obviously, there were areas which were dominated by the left, in which more people were killed on the right than, than on the left. But overall, I would say about three times as many people were murdered by the Francoist forces. And that's not to say that there weren't horrific numbers. We know for a fact that you know, within a matter of hundreds, 50,000 people, 50,000 civilians or imprisoned military officers were murdered within the Republican zone, not by the Republican authorities, but they, they were murdered. On the other hand, we know that at least 150,000, and it's very difficult because in order to give numbers of the dead, you need the names. And the right-wing dead were, first of all, the Republican authorities actually made an effort you know, to get the names and the details and so on. And then, of course, as the Francoists captured places, there was a huge investigation and much encouragement of denunciations and so on. So there are very detailed lists of, of, of names of those who were murdered within the Republican zone, whereas, of course, it was much more sporadic and it's, it's, it's much more difficult. So as of now, we actually have just under 140,000 names. I mean, definite, verifiable names of people murdered in the Francoist zone. But of course, there are large numbers of, of unnamed people. You know, there are, there are many, many mass graves. It's not known who, who's in there, but it is known that they're, they're full of Republican corpses. And it, it's very difficult because of the, the... I mean, there are numerous occasions within the Civil War where there are chains of or convoys of refugees. So, for instance, after the capture of Malaga, 100,000 people fled from Malaga to Almeria, being bombed from the air by Italian and German aircraft, shelled from the sea by the Francoist navy, and pursued by armoured vehicles. And no one knows how many of those 10,000 died along the road or who they were. It's been, you know, to this day, people are still, there are still local historians trying to, to work that out. And the biggest is perhaps the, the flight from Barcelona, um, 26th of January 1939. Nearly half a million people set out for the French border. And again, they were bombed by the German and Italian air force, pursued by uh, armoured vehicles and so on. And no one really knows how many died. So it, it, it's, but what what I'm trying to say here is, you know, we, we have maybe 138,000 names that are verifiable, but there are probably 
several dozens of thousands more. By what means did the military rebels disseminate their paranoid ideology and rally support during the Civil War? Well, to begin with, of course, the the same means of dissemination that had existed before the war continued to exist. I mean, the, the right-wing press. Radio was growing as a, as a medium at this time. General Capoleano had his daily broadcasts, which um, had an enormous impact. Many of the memoirs of the day, apart from the fact that they are, you know, the, the transcripts were in the newspaper. So the the newspapers continue to exist, but they're in a way much more unrestrained uh, in the areas that were controlled by the military. There's much more in the way of pamphlets. And of course, whereas the Republican zone remained a democracy with conflict between the political parties and so on, and with often conflictive Press, so you know, you've, we've still got the anarchists and the socialists and the communists and the republicans all disputing their ideas. In the Francoist zone, it was basically one huge barracks. There was no chance of there being any kind of resistance. Any kind of opposition was considered mutiny and punishable by death. So that was, uh, shall we say, a very considerable aid to the propagation of these ideas. Was there any disagreement or hostility between the individuals your book addresses and what impact did this have on events? The thing is that we have on both sides the notion of what's called geographical loyalty. So while it would be reasonable to say that within the armed forces, the bulk of the officer corps was in favour of, of, of the military uprising. Now, there were, of course, officers who were Republican in their views. If they were foolish enough to make this clear or not to renounce them, they were simply shot. There were Republican army officers being shot within the Francoist zone, literally from the very first days. So that was an obvious limitation. Now, equally... For instance, within the clergy, there are individuals who protested against the massacres that were taking place. And in some cases, I mean, they were either removed from their parishes. I mean, they, they, you know, they, they were persecuted. Now, overall, I mean, we, in fact, in the, again, we have to make the difference that in the Republican zone, probably 6,000 members of the clergy were murdered during the Civil War. Priests were murdered in the Francoist zone as well. Now, obviously, we're talking about maybe 17 or 18. I mean, 17 or 18, too many. But but it is significant that uh, a regime that was allegedly, you know, protective of, of Catholicism was able to persecute that minority of clergy who held out for Christian values and and tried to limit the killing. So yes, there were individuals who opposed what was going on, but life became very, very difficult for them. So for instance, even if you were very conservative and a Freemason, and you were on the lists that were compiled by Father Tusquets, 
then at the very least, you would end up in in prison in very poor circumstance. I mean, the prisons, you would find, you know, cells that were created for six people would often have over 30 in them. You know, there are appalling conditions in, in Francoist prisons and that that's another area that there are still no accurate figures of the number of people who died in prison. What role did the Catholic Church play in Franco's Spain, and how did it respond to the regime's anti-Semitic, anti-communist, and anti-Masonic policies? Well, of course, there's a long, a long tradition of anti-Semitism in the Catholic the Spanish Church going back to the Spanish Inquisition. I would say that you know, for a majority of the not not the totality. There were a number of, of, of liberal churchmen in the church hierarchy, particularly Cardinal Vidali Baraker, who was the, the Cardinal Archbishop of Tarragona, who, because of his views, was essentially exiled to Rome during the Civil War. But I would say the majority of the Catholic hierarchy believed in the ideas of the, the Jewish Bolshevik Masonic conspiracy, because obviously there was a lot of anti-clericalism on the left, particularly um, amongst the the anarchist peasantry in the South, for the simple reason, of course, the, the church was very, very wealthy. And from the pulpit, parish priests had been arguing that if there was social injustice, then it was God's will. And therefore, you know, this generated considerable hostility to the church. And that anti-clericalism was manifested in the very early days of the war, I mean, within a matter of days, in murders of, of, of clergy. So inevitably, from the church's side, only too glad to have the protection of the army. And from the army's side, one of the most potent ways of securing mass support was, of course, to be seen as the protectors of the Catholic Church, because obviously Spain was a Catholic country and had a Catholic majority at that time. And therefore, one might almost say it was a marriage made in heaven. And the idea that, which I mean, which was simply not the case, the idea that what the military uprising was about was a, was a Catholic crusade, that endeared Franco and the, the 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 military rebels to the papacy, so that secured the the support of the Vatican. If you like, it was a kind of inevitable alliance. Why did several of these men seek to whitewash their biographies after 1939, and what have the consequences of this been on Spain's memory of the civil war and Franco dictatorship? Well, obviously, one of the things that I stress, I mean, clearly the most obvious case of somebody whitewashing their memory is Franco uh, and, and, and the efforts made by Franco to, to reduce the, the numbers killed, to exaggerate the numbers killed on the other side, to pretend that uh, he was actually a friend to the Jews. And this took the form of, of government-issued pamphlets, despite the fact that at, at the time Franco was writing on, under a pseudonym the most virulently uh, anti-Semitic articles. For the actual killers, the people who did the murdering, that was very difficult. But, but, you know, they, they, what, what, how could they admit 
publicly. I mean, people in their villages knew who they were, knew what they'd done. But it's it's actually quite a difficult business. I think if you were prominent enough, so in the case of, I mean, obviously, Tusquets never actually killed anybody, never murdered anybody personally. Perman never murdered anybody personally, although there are photographs of him gloating over Republican corpses. And they were both prominent. So, I mean, it was easier for them. They had the the media at their disposal to permit you know, the, the process of whitewashing. That was Paul Preston. His book, Architects of Terror, Paranoia, Conspiracy and Antisemitism in Franco-Spain, is out now, published by William Collins. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.